Howdy, everybody. Welcome to another edition of the Cowboys of the Osage podcast brought to you by the Ben Johnson Cowboy Museum located in downtown historic Pahuska, Oklahoma. It's old Cody over here, and as always, I have my co-host with me, Mr. Rodeo Historian himself, the best around, Jimbo Snively. Hey, Jimbo, where are we at and who do we have today? Hey, Cody boy, it's another great day in the Osage, but we're not in the Osage. We're down here by outside Oklahoma City in the bunkhouse of the all-time money-winning jockey in American quarter horse racing history. All-time leader in wins aboard American quarter horses. He won the All-American Futurity twice. He named the American Quarter Horse Association World Champion Jockey ten times. He's in four Hall of Fames. Of course, I'm talking about the great G.R. Carter. And the best thing about him, he's originally from Pahuska, Oklahoma. Born and raised right there in Pahuska. And uh, G.R., welcome to the Cowboy the Osage podcast. Thanks for having me on, guys. I'm 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 flattered that, that y'all wanted to include me in this. And I've known Jimbo for ever since I was a child. And I've, I've known Cody since he was a child and uh, watched his dad rope for a lot of years. And uh, I'm, I'm tickled to death to be included. We're glad to have you. Glad to have you. Super glad to have you, GR. Yeah, well, you, you know, you're saying Pahuska, you know, I'm, I'm, my, my whole family history is Pahuska. You know, I might live in Oklahoma City, and ha- I hadn't lived in Pahuska since I graduated from high school, May of 1986. I, I became a race tracker from that day on, but, but I, I feel like I am a Pahuskan still today. Well, we claim you. <laughs> so, since you have all those deep, long roots in Pahuska, let's start off with your family, GR. Some of, some of your family. Um, your uncle, Barton Carter, great uncle. Yep. He was one of the greatest cowboys to ever live. 1926 world champion steer roper. Yes, sir. He, uh, he was born... He was... I, I know my granddad was born in Pahuska in 1898, and, I, and I'm pretty sure Barton, Uncle Barton was born in Pahuska also a few years earlier. So uh, my family goes back to the 1800s right there in Pahuska. My granddad, my dad, and, and me, all, all three were born in Pahuska. What about your, I knew your grandpa read oh. well. You know, what kind of influence did he have on your life growing up? You, you know, <laughs> The biggest thing about Red was was all of the stories and and knowing the, the his history as as a young man. He was a, him and Barton both original Ates Osage of the Osage Indian tribe, and uh, you know so they received the, the royalties off the oil. And I, I don't think they started getting them until they were eighteen or twenty or something. And uh, from everything I know, my granddad he. Uh, he he truly thrived in the rip roaring twenties. Him and Barton both, and uh, hearing all those stories about of him like bulldogging a a steer off the side of his Stets Bearcat, his sports car and all, and I've seen a picture of it is is that that's that's all pretty special stuff. And uh, but my granddad, what had, was that picture again? I'm sorry. It was a picture of and and explain it to everybody because uh, a Stets Bearcat was a sports car in the 20s that my granddad bought because he was young and had money and and his cowboy buddies and all ahead of a steer out on the prairie somewhere out in western western osage county and they uh they bulldogged the steer off the running board of, of the stets bearcat 
and they someone took a picture of it, and it's it's one of the uh, old legendary postcards from like they used to send off back in the early 1900s. I've seen that picture, and that wasn't a little steer they were bulldogging either. <laughs> no, he looked like he was about as big as the car. <laughs> he looked like a bucking bull or something. I don't even know. Yeah, but you know, my granddad, uh, he he lived a lot of life before he ever even had any kids. His uh, he was 44 years old when my dad was born, which is his, was his first child. And then he had two, and his, his third one when he was 50. Yeah. And lost a child in a tornado, too, didn't he? Yeah. Well, that, that was actually, uh, that was actually his stepson. Okay. Was, uh, was, uh, Jack. So, uh, Jack was killed in the tornado, which was my, my grandmother Carter's mm -hmm. son. And I think he was like six years old, two weeks before my dad was born. So he got killed in, uh, Say May first of nineteen forty-two, yeah. in the tornado that came right through Pahuska. Went right through Atlanta, Edition, Cody, where you live. Right, th right there. That it, it, it's literally Cody, not two blocks where they lived from where you live. It's where the tornado went through. And I got a storm shelter right out my back door now. <laughs> Luckily, <laughs> Luckily, might need it. Oh yeah. What? How? What did Osage County? How did that influence you growing up? Well, you know. It it didn't just influence me. It's who I am and who I was. You know, I I, I idolized all the local cowboys. The a lot of the same guys that that Cody has honored in his in his cowboy museum. You know, like Ben Johnson, of course, was old man Ben Johnson was a mythical figure because he was such a great steer roper. And then his son was his son, uh, Ben's son Johnson. You know, of course, is a movie star. How right. many? You know, how many? How many? How many towns of uh, of that size have have been the the home place of of an Oscar winner? Right. You know, right. it's you know. So Ben Son Johnson was you know that he he was the guy that everyone looked up to, and that's why he's getting honored by Cody. But the whole Osage County deal that was just my identity. I mean, mm -hmm. that's who all my family, everything. What I like telling people about. It's when I started riding races, of course, I started traveling a lot more here to the west, from here every every place that run quarter horses from from here to the west coast that run quality racing I rode. But one thing when I got out and experienced the world a little bit, I was amazed that they didn't have grass everywhere like they do in Pahuska. Yeah. You know, you get out in New Mexico and it's desert right. and then California's desert and then along the coast there's grass. But I, I was really surprised about the landscape of a lot of other places because in my mind the landscape was osage county you know your great uncle and and your granddad they came across some pretty good horses here and there yeah they 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 had some some of the best horses that there was back in in their day which tell us about that great horse bootlegger well bootlegger was a, a horse that my granddad purchased off of a black man in I think 1919 is when my granddad actually purchased him and they went to tripping steers on him and the horse just took to it like a duck to water and Barton and my granddad and three or four other of their really good friends all rode that horse you know with places like Madison Square Garden Cheyenne and Will Rod and, and he was a beautiful black horse with a long mane and tail and Will Rogers had, had 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 seen him rope on the horse uh, a handful of times, and he he wanted the, he wanted to buy the horse really bad. It took it took Will Rogers about three years to talk my granddad into letting him letting him buy him, and uh, and he ended up becoming one of 
well, he ended up becoming Will's favorite polo horse. He just he was that horse was that good and that broke to where he uh, just took right to the polo deal and was uh, was I guess a big time polo horse. And and he and he of course he roped on him also. But the one thing that Will had to promise my granddad. My granddad would always tell him, "says Will, I can't sell you that horse. You know, you're you're a city guy in that movie deal, and you'll 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 cut his mane off, and he's got that beautiful long black mane and tail, and you'll cut his mane off and make him look like one of them city horses." <laughs> and Will promised my granddad that he would he he would leave his mane alone, and he did. I've seen pictures of him of of that horse right before Will died, where his mane is still beautiful long black mane and tail. And it's not confirmed or anything, but we also read in your your great uncle's obituary, and they had a big write up about him that in the Tulsa world that he sold uh, also sold Will that his other favorite roping horse, Soap Suds. So yeah, those those two horses are uh, buried at the uh, at Will's uh, last home, which is a is a is a national park at Pacific Palisades, California, and those two horses are buried there behind the house, Soap Soap Suds and Bootlegger both. And, uh, you know, I, I know for a fact, of course, that, that Bootlegger came from Granddad, but I'm, I, I've, I've heard conflicting reports of where Soap Suds come from, but it has been said that, that he came from my, my uh, great-uncle Barton. He could have traded for him for Will. Who yeah, knows? he could have. So there's a lot that, of effect. Wouldn't it be crazy, though, Will's two favorite horses come from Osage County? I mean, came from two brothers in Osage yeah, County. Two, yeah, two brothers. What are the odds of that? Yeah. You know, he's got a... And the and the famous lineage in the Carter family doesn't end with them. He's got another uncle, Wild Man Nelson. He set some. Uh, he's a pretty famous guy in his own right. Yeah he he had a he had a really big run of just a couple of years in the early seventies. He uh, went out to California and got involved in the drag racing, the funny car business, and uh, he kind of set the world on fire there for just a couple of years. Long he. Uh, was the super chief was his uh, mm-hmm. his funny his name of his funny car and and Nelson was the super chief he played the role to the max would wear a, wear a headdress at, at uh, some of the car races and, mm-hmm. and take photos and stuff and uh, he uh, there's actually a uh, a Mattel race car the, the super chief that uh, Hot Wheel Hot Wheels mm-hmm. yeah and uh, Nelson he's 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 pretty proud of what he did, but he still likes living in those couple years, nineteen seventy one and seventy two, still today. <laughs> well, that was his prime. <laughs> that was his. That was definitely his prime. Well, I just read something about him the other day. As unofficially, he's the first man to drive a car over two hundred miles an hour. His on the his, his car was the first car to uh, to average speed of be, go over two hundred mile an hour. Yeah. Wow. And uh, you know that's something that's something pretty big, really, to have your own Hot Wheel car. <laughs> Just like this guy has his own bobblehead, you know. Right. It runs in the family. You get toys made after you if your last name's Carter. Right. GR, when I worked for your dad, I remember your mom used to haul you to gymnastics about twice a week. It was five days a week. Was it that much? I couldn't remember if it was every day, but you were a really good uh, gymnast, they said. Yeah, I went to the Philip 66 program at Bartersville, which, you know, was 25, 30 miles from Pahuska. And, uh, my mom was primarily our uh, chauffeur. There was me and my sisters and uh, two or three other kids from Pahuska that uh, we 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 go over there five days a week after school and train for a couple hours and and then back home. So you know you were it was it was a, a three hour a day commitment five yeah. days a week as a kid and uh, and I I did really well at, at gymnastics. I was 
course, uh, I feel like that it, the gymnastics really helped me in so many different aspects of the things I got involved in, like especially race riding. It, knowing how to hit the ground and mm-hmm. and being able to feel my body in the air, I could I, I kind of avoided injuries more than than most guys that, especially guys that rode as many races as I did. So yeah. I, gymnastics was yeah. a big part of my childhood. Right. I, as I remember, you just kind of quit it kind of abruptly, didn't you? Yeah, I uh, actually uh, broke my tailbone. I was uh, training. It was the summer after eighth grade, and me and one other guy in the gym were good enough where we were going to go to the Junior Olympic tryouts, which is the Junior Olympic team is the one that travels you know, mm-hmm. to, uh, mm-hmm. to other, other countries and competes against their, their juniors. And uh, we were trying a bunch of wild stuff, and that was when one arm Giants, which was a, a full rotation around the high bar, where we swap over, change grips, and I lost my grip and come off the, off of the uh, the high bar, and I hit the corner of a little cement pit. They had a, fo- a foam-filled pit to where you could just almost dive into not get hurt. But I hit on the corner of the pit and broke my tailbone. Well, whenever the, the, tour, the couple of months that I was off, from gymnastics right there of course i missed the tryouts i actually got to experience i was 14 years old and i got to experience a few few things that kids my age did like running around town mm-hmm. and having having a life other than right. five days a week at gymnastics and that was uh and of course about that time that it, right at that time is when i started galloping race horses and there's just so many other things. It, it was almost like it was meant to be mm-hmm. to happen that mm-hmm. way because i got involved in other things like wrestling, back junior rodeo and real heavy. Mm-hmm. And, of course, I started being a jockey. All those things happened right after I quit gymnastics. Wrestling. Yeah. Wrestling. What kind of wrestling did you do? Oh, I was the... Uh... <laughs> I heard he's a pretty successful wrestler. His dad's told me all about it a few times. Uh, I remember it. <laughs> yeah, Pahuska has a... Uh, they have a history in uh, being a wrestling school for a small school. Mm-hmm. Guys like the Carmans, Les mm-hmm. Carmen. Uh, Pat Pace, are all guys that were state champions from the seventies. Sean Wilson, Sean Wilson, were all all champ, all state champs from the the seventies mm-hmm. and early years of Coach DeMoss. And uh, I was a senior in '86. I ended up third. At, I made state my all three years in high school, my sophomore, junior, and senior year. My junior year, I ended up third, and my senior year in high school, I uh, Ended up winning the state. T- a matter of fact, I broke the drought. Pahuska had went 11 years without a state champion. And uh, I broke the drought that night and uh, won state. And uh, that, to me, that's probably the most proud moment of my life, even more so than anything I did riding races, was, was winning state and wrestling. It was, I know your dad was pretty proud of that. Oh, he was, he was over, the, over the moon proud of it. I, I, never, I remember running and jumping into his arms. And... Uh, it was just a special moment. Yeah, I, saw, I remember seeing that picture. Yeah, yeah. Is that was that your first backflip or? Yeah, with, yeah that, it was my. You know, when we were warming up and stuff, and of course I could tumble, and we were doing it in practice and all. I could do a tumbling passes and all, and all my buddies, my wrestling buddies, they'd been after me like, man, whenever you pin someone, jump up and do a backflip after the match. They'll sell me, so that'll humiliate them. And yeah. I'm like, no, no, I'm gonna. The only way I'm gonna do a backflip is if I win state. And, uh, and and of course, after I won state, I had to do the backflip. Yeah, right. <laughs> and I and I did. And it. Uh, matter of fact, they even had a little clip of it that they used to show, leading up to the state tournament every year. They had a little clip where they were advertising the state tournament. You used to be able to watch it on one of the off channels mm-hmm. or something. And they would show a little clip of that backflip. And uh, Martin Parks, one my junior high wrestling coach, he uh, 
he was he was pretty proud of that because mm-hmm. he uh, felt like he had something to something. Well, he he was he was my junior high res, elementary and junior high coach, and then Coach Moss was my high school coach. Right. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, I know Coach DeMoss. My first pawn shop was right next door to his to his uh, taxidermy place right there in Pahuska. You, you know, know the, the, good fella, Coach DeMoss. Oh, he's, he's still a strong man at something eighty something years old and tip top yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, shape. Yeah, he's he's sort of out there close to eighty, and he uh, he's the, you know those those guys right there. They they really had a big influence on my life, and uh, I love them forever. Yeah, yeah, great yeah. guys. Sounds like we're lucky you didn't go into professional wrestling with all your athletic ability and wrestling ability and backflips. Who knows what he could have did off the top rope, Jimbo? But you, you know, wrestling requires a, a lot of uh, uh, stamina and a lot, a lot of self-discipline and all that. Did that carry over and help you in your racehorses? With, without a doubt. You know, that's what I was telling you. I'm probably more proud of winning that state title than, than anything. And the reason why is because of what it actually – you don't know what it takes. Yeah. To actually be able to to get to that point, it, it's 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 being dedicated, hardworking, all the things that ended up tra- transpiring over to I used in my in my in my race riding career, making weight, making weight. Yep. You know, the, there was it. There's just so many things that come from wrestling. Of course, the gymnastics you right. know, made me more agile. Where I I really feel like it came even being being injury prone but the wrestling gave me a lot of the tools that that directly related to having success as being a jockey bull riding i've heard you're quite the bull rider your dad told me you never got bucked off a bull well let me tell you how that went how that went i rode steers a little bit when i was real young and uh and i didn't ride there for a while well after i got out of gymnastics that 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 next year that was kind of the heyday of the Northeast Shoes Rodeo Association. Well, they announced it before that year that they were going to give saddles away that next year to the all-around winners for the first time ever. And I remember telling Dad, I'm, that, you mark it down, I'm winning that saddle. Well, I, I, I out-rodeoed them. I, I, I'd, I'd enter the bareback riding, the team roping, the ribbon roping, the, the calf roping. I was entering four events. Well, after being at them rodeos all night and all, and I was watching those bulls and all, and about dad's, dad mentioned something like, boy, those bulls look like you could handle them good. And I said, you know what? I've been watching them too. So went and bought, I went and bought a bull rope and <laughs> and just went to enter in the bull riding. And that was over halfway through the season. And they pointed it out at the banquet. I didn't realize it, but we were at the banquet. And the stock contractor says, you know, you scored points at 17 rodeos in a row. And I'm like, okay, huh? He says, you know, you don't realize what that means. That means you rode 17 bulls in a row. That's a high riding average, no but, matter who you are or what I, you're riding. I right. did go to a couple high school rodeos in in between there that I drew a lot tougher bulls, and I got bucked off. But um, So that, that didn't, that's why I didn't realize that I'd ridden 17 in a row, but the stock contractor made a big deal out of it that uh, – that I'd rode that many. Well, I rode every bull. Every bull I got on the that second half of the season, I, I covered them. And uh, the uh, the next year, I was I was riding bulls kind of in the in the high school rodeos and of course the NYRA. And I and, and that year I'd already started riding races at the time. And uh, I finally drew one that uh, got the best of me big time and stomped the hell out of me down at Tishomingo, Oklahoma. <laughs> and uh, I remember I separated my shoulder and and cracked some ribs and was spitting up blood and uh 
And I, I remember thinking, boy, I got to back off this bull ride, and I'm gonna get, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna get killed, or I won't be able to ride a race next weekend, and act, and make, and make real money. Mm-hmm. And that's that was that was kind of the end of my bull riding career. I was probably, I was probably a junior or senior in high school, hadn't been on one since, but I've still got my bull rope back here just in case anything comes up one of these days. Right. You probably made a good decision there. <laughs> Yeah, I feel like I made a pretty wise decision. When did you ride your first horse? I suppose just galloping. Uh... Yeah, that's a, that's a pretty good story. My very first experience of getting on a racehorse was right there at Osage Downs at the fairgrounds. I, I Gene Heron, which is Chad Heron's granddad, Gene had been in the racehorse business for years, and he had a handful of racehorses in training. And... For a couple of years, ever since I was about twelve, he'd been after me and telling me that I was the perfect, the perfect candidate specimen, however you don't call it, to be a jockey. He said, "You got, you first off, you've been around horses your whole life. You've junior rodeo. You understand horses." He said, "You you got grit, and you're an athlete." And he said, "I I know you probably have a good work ethic." Well, finally. The summer after eighth grade, right after I got out of gymnastics and probably got healed up enough from the the broken tailbone, I went over to Osage Downs and got on some racehorses. First ones I ever got on was uh, was actually Gene was there that day, but the first couple I actually got on was for a black guy that was Gene's ex jockey, a guy named Jerry Daly. And Jerry Daly puts me on one and sends me out there and tells me to take it one lap and a half round track and come back. And it was a nice little easy one. And I remember going around there and thinking, well, this isn't too awful bad. You know, so I come back, and he said, well, how'd you get along? I said, I got along pretty good, I felt like. So he sends me out on another one, and she was a little tougher, pulled on the bid a little bit more. Well, he had failed to teach me anything, because it been, and I know why he did it. It was because mm-hmm. he knew that I was going to get along okay, because I had, you know, I was a horseman and had been a cowboy. But he didn't teach me how, what you actually do, you cross your reins and run them down the horse's neck, and that's how you let them pull pull on you, ones that, that pull on the bit a little more. And that, they, they can just kind of lean against you. Well, he didn't show me that or teach me that. And this one second one, she pulled on me a little bit. And I remember going around there just having a rein in each hand and just finding out, I thought, oh, man, this will kill your back and legs. And I come back, and he said, well, how'd you get along on that one? And I told him, not as good. This one pulled on me, and I was having to fight her. He said, well, here, let me show you how to make that easier. And he showed me how to cross the reins, slide down her neck to where the horse actually pulls against it. And I was like, Man, why didn't he show me that to start with? No, but I knew that looking back on the deal, I realized the reason why he did was because he uh, wanted me to uh, he wanted me to see the benefit mm-hmm. of it, you know. And that, I remember things like that, and that and that was in uh, 1982, almost 40 years ago, and I remember it like it was yesterday. Mm-hmm. Puska had a pretty good little track there going on at one time, didn't they? Yeah, they, 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 not a whole lot of people know it, but Pahuska, the uh, the racetrack there. At Pahuska was uh, was an, they ran official quarter horse races in the fifties and early sixties, and they ran one of the one of one of the premier fraternities that runs at Remington Park, the Oklahoma fraternity. It ran at Pahuska two or three years in in the late fifties, hmm. and I've I've seen the win picture. Uh, the guy that was Carcass Scales at Blue Ribbon Downs, he had a picture for where he won that fraternity, and he used to have it hanging there behind his desk, and all of that. That's Pahuska right there. Hmm. But and then the uh, for years, a lot of the uh, guys from the thoroughbred track up in Nebraska at Axarbon would winter because mm-hmm. the weather was so much better there. There at the racetrack, they'd rent stalls and train there. So Pahuska was kind of, the racetrack there was kind of a happening place through through mm-hmm. the through the seventies was kind of the heyday of of uh, 
of it being a training center in the winter. Yeah, I remember that when them guys would come in from up yeah. north. Yeah, and you know, and looking back, I uh, there was a handful of guys that still trained there. Of course, when I was a kid, guys like Wayne Butte, of course Bob Routon was the, mm-hmm. the the big stable. Of course, Gene had horses there local mm-hmm. that he hauled into the track and all. Uh, uh, Willie Carmen had horses that. Uh, the old man, I can't think of his name. Was it Van Beaver? Well, Van Beaver was before, the generation before. The heyday okay. of the 70s was when okay. was kind of Van's, 60s yeah. and 70s right. was kind of Van's heyday. But uh, but all the, those handful of guys that still train there, those are all the guys that I galloped for in the early part of my career through high school. And then there was a guy that, that bought the Hughes Birch Creek Ranch, which is down the Birch Creek Ranch, which is between Pahuska and Barnsdall, right there by mm-hmm. Pershing, mm-hmm. a racehorse guy bought that ranch. Would have been in the early eighties. Clay Neal. No, the Clay Neal ended up with it after okay. this guy. Okay. He ended up with it after. Okay. Uh, his the guy's name was Don Hughes, and they okay. had a couple pretty good stallions: Hamido, Hamido Dancer, and uh, Deal the Cards. Was an easy jet horse. Well, anyhow, he bought that ranch and he hired a guy from Illinois named Bill Lau, and they they put in a, tra- a gallop. Uh, they put in a training center down there at the ranch, and they hired me. Of course, I was just sixteen. The the, the first real job I had, of, I actually, I actually worked two summers where I was the gallop boy and rode races on at the weekends, and I and I also cleaned stalls. I worked. I, I had a I had a real racetrack job, hmm. cleaning stalls, doing it all. I was a groom, the jockey, I did it all. And Bill, and and I, I worked there, the summer after my sophomore year, or no, the summer after my freshman year, the summer after my sophomore year, and then the summer after my junior year, I was riding races and doing a lot, but doing pretty well by then. And I didn't, uh, I didn't work full time. I just went out there and got on horses. And then I would go back into the racetrack. But Bill Lau got killed in the fall of 85 when I was the first part of my senior year in high school. And he's the one person that had uh, just a major influence on the early part of my career that he got killed in a car wreck, in a, in a truck wreck in that fall. And he's the one guy that I wish would know how it all turned out. Yeah. Because uh, he, uh, he taught me so many different things about actually being at the racetrack which is which is a little a little bit different than uh osage downs yeah I imagine. <laughs> so when you're on the road jockeying what what's it like what was it like in the early days would you have to sleep in the tack room would they put you up in a motel would you fly in fly out like a a, a rock star what <laughs> what was it like when you first started well, you, you, know, you decided you were going to be a jockey and uh or being in the racehorse business in yeah. some form or fashion. You know, most most kids. I rode my first official races, official races on the racetrack when I was 16 years old. My first official ride and a first official win was on a mare that Dad trained. Her name was Bees Jester. It was at Blue Ribbon Downs in a Labor Day weekend of 1984 when I was 16, and and I started riding for for the guys from Pahuska weekends. Eureka, Salisaw, Ada. Rode some races. I remember it at, at Enid at Old Garfield Downs, and th- most kids that start riding races and start making money when they're sixteen, ninety-five percent of them never finish school. 
because they're making money, they'll mm-hmm. be off somewhere, and school just seems to get in the way, mm-hmm. you know. But you know, I was I was in wrestling, and I'd kept my. I had every intention of going to school at Oklahoma State and going through the animal. Dad had a degree in animal science from from Oklahoma State, and that was my plan. My plan was from the time I was 10 years old, I was going to school at Oklahoma State. I was going to go through the animal science program, maybe eventually get into the into the veterinary program. So I, since I had those great plans, I kept my grades up. I uh, I did. I, I really concentrated in sc- school and and m- made really good grades. Where I ended up being the Val Victorian or the Salutatorian, which is whatever mm-hmm. whatever is number two. That's that's what I graduated as a Salutatorian of, of uh, the 1986 class. But wrestling and the and the thought that I was still maybe going to go to college is what kept me in school. And and I'm glad that I did because I still was able to ride the weekends and small tracks. But about halfway through my senior year, I was really I'd, I'd won a couple little small fraternities where I'd made I'd made pretty good checks, and I was like, you know, I can put that school deal on hold. I need to I need to get to the track to where I can really ride a lot of races. So as soon as I graduated from high school, May of '86, that's what I like to tell everyone that asked me if I went to college. I tell them, you bet I went to college. I went straight to Blue Ribbon Downs, <laughs> Blue Ribbon Downs, South Oklahoma, Blue and, Ribbon Tech, and that. And the, and people back in those days, Salisaw Blue Ribbon was the only was the only game in Oklahoma. The Remington Park hadn't even been built yet. So when I graduated in '86, uh, they didn't start running at Remington till the fall of '88. So it was about two and a half years later. And in that meantime, Salisaw, like I say, was the only game in town. And it's crazy how many horses were there: quarter horses, thoroughbreds, paints, apps. I rode them all, and they ran ten months out of the year. Four days a week, twelve races a day, and there'd be a lot of there'd be a lot of weeks I'd ride forty races. There was one year I rode like seventeen hundred races in one year, oh, wow. all, all at Blue Ribbon Downs, all of them. And so, from the time I graduated in the in May of '86 up until the fall of 1990, I was primarily a Blue Ribbon Downs jockey. So I wasn't really doing a lot of running around. And we'd make trips down to Ada. And then after Remington got open and up and running, I would make some trips up here. But the first time that I really got away from Salisaw, I was leading rider at Salisaw in uh, 89 and 90. And, and I remember my first goal when I got out of high school and moved to Salisaw. Randy Wilson was the king at Blue Ribbon Downs. He'd been the leading rider the previous couple of years, the years even before Paramutual. And my goal was to be leading rider at Salisaw and beat Randy Wilson. Well, I accomplished that goal in 89 and 90. And I had some success that summer here at Remington Park in Oklahoma City. And I knew that to better myself, and, and I rode quarter horses and thoroughbreds both. And I had pretty good success with both breeds. And I was at a point in my career to better myself, I needed to go somewhere else where there was better quality racing. And, that, and at that point, I had to make a choice on I had to make a choice on whether I was going to throw my heart and soul into being a quarter horse jock or a thoroughbred jock. You know, if I was going to ride thoroughbreds, I'd go to the East Coast, West Coast, or Kentucky. And the reason why I threw my heart and soul into the quarter horse game, the scale of weights in the quarter horse, the quarter horse world is about five pounds heavier than the thoroughbred world. Like the most of the weights would be twenty to twenty-four at that time. The thir- to ride thoroughbred. What does that mean for okay. people that don't understand it? Okay, what, GR, this, this, taking. I'm giving you racetrack terms. I well, need yeah. To I, well, I kind of know what some of them mean, but there's a lot of people that watch this that may not know what some of the terminology is. Yes. So be as uh, specific as you can well, about well, some Okay, of this. The, the way you see in the program, 
that beside the jockey. That's the weight of the jockey plus his tack, which is your saddle clothes. No safety equipment. You can't weigh with your helmet or your vest. But so if you see 120 pounds in a program, the jockey really needs to weigh about 116 to be able to tack 120. And to be able to that, that be the if 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 they let you be over, but they announce it to the program for the for the handicappers' purposes of like that mm-hmm. jocks three pounds over the the assigned weight of one hundred and twenty, mm-hmm. which you make kind of makes you look bad, and a lot of the trainers don't really want that. But anyhow, to really to the quarter horse scale weights at that time was twenty to twenty four, so I, I was maintaining my weight around one hundred and sixteen, and I was having to watch my weight to do that, and I was twenty years old to go ride thoroughbreds. At one of the places like Kentucky, I really would need to tack 116, meaning that I would need to, to be to weigh about 112, and I was going to have to pull that much more weight. And I knew that I was 20 years old, and I was already having to watch my weight do 120. So I went with the quarter horse deal, and and I felt like I ended up 30 30 years later, I retired reasonably healthy. You know, I've I've seen so many of the health problems guys have from starving or self fighting weight doing probably a lot of things they shouldn't mm-hmm. to their body. And uh I feel like I got out pretty pretty reasonably healthy because because I went with the quarter horse deal. Did you ever have any serious injuries? You know, that's uh that's something I credit to the gymnastics. I, as as far as I, I rode over thirty if you if you I rode almost twenty five thousand official quarter horse races. If you add paints, apps and thoroughbreds, I rode over over thirty thousand, like almost thirty-one. So I averaged about a thousand races a year for my career. Well, nobody got hurt less than I did that had any that, those kind mm-hmm. of numbers. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, I, I I got hurt a few times, broke my collarbone a couple times, chipped a little piece off my wrist, or I had, had some surgery, and I missed a couple of weeks. But there was never any time. You know, the broken collarbone. One one time, I didn't. I just kept riding through mm-hmm. it you know there was a bunch of big races coming up and i just took care of it whipped left-handed because i couldn't right. <laughs> whip left. but uh the uh the gymnastics really helped me you know i had wrecks and mm-hmm. and and i didn't even go back into jock stream after having a horse uh go down with me and roll over me and look like he should have got killed mm-hmm. i remember going back in the room and watching the replay is like wow that looked bad how am I, how did i walk back mm-hmm. how did i walk back in the room and able to ride the mm-hmm. next race mm-hmm. so uh yeah I, I had wrecks but i was very fortunate about it. i never had i never had any of the big time wrecks that hurt me bad enough to where where i was off for an extended period of time i see so many of those guys that'll have those kind of wrecks where they break their leg have rod mm-hmm. put in healing stimulators mm-hmm. and they'd be mm-hmm. off for six months before they can come back and the majority of those guys whenever they come back after that type of an injury they're not this they're not mm-hmm. the same jockey they were before then it's like they're riding with a little bit of that uncertainty mm-hmm. and, and fear mm-hmm. in the back of their mind and they're not they're not they, they don't seem to have quite the success that they had before some kind of injury like that mm-hmm. you know we're just talking about injuries you know here's here's something that that i that i that I like telling that seems really fascinating to a lot of people don't know. Nationwide, you know, we're talking thoroughbreds, quarter horse jocks, paint apps, all jockeys. There's about 2,500 licensed jockeys nationwide. On average, two guys a year get killed. 
mm-hmm. in a, in in an on track accident. It's 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 a dangerous way to make a way. It, it's a very rewarding job. You know, it, I was lucky. I was so lucky that I got that thrill of winning and the thrill of competition on a day to day basis. You know, that that never got old. Mm-hmm. And 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 you know, and and of course, it's been almost three years since I rode, and I miss that too. But you know, it's 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 a dangerous profession, and and two guys a year get killed. They started keeping records in 1940. The Jockeys Guild, which mm-hmm. is the national national union, mm-hmm. and uh, and I've seen the records. And you you would think that there was a lot there was a lot more racing back, especially up through like the 70s and 80s. Mm-hmm. Probably twice as many actual races there is now. But I real I feel like that the reason that the, that the deaths or, or major injuries have stayed consistent. The numbers is because the, the horses are so much faster than they were back then, you know, and 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 they've bred the bone out mm-hmm. of them, you know. Mm-hmm. They they a lot of the horses I remember. That's something that I remember when I first started. It's a major difference now. The bone structure of a lot of those horses was really was was they had big nice knees and cannon mm-hmm. bones, and now and now they're it's like they're a little bit more deer legged than they, than they are that big. And it and I think that that contributes to some of the horses breaking down they're just so fast and mm-hmm. have less bone structure how's a jockey get paid <laughs> when you first started compared to where you ended yeah can you give me a little timeline on that gr because nobody really a rodeo cowboy you get paid when you win you don't yeah. get paid to show up do you pay a jockey to ride your horse and you get a bonus if they place i don't know yeah that's a good question you know uh you know uh whenever i started galloping racehorses for gene heron and and Jerry Daly in summer of 1982, I got $5 a horse to gallop a racehorse in the mornings. And then I started riding some brush track races, which was the unsanctioned match races at Claremore, like real quick, like at the racetrack there right behind right behind the hospital there where the fairgrounds is at there in Claremore is where the racetrack used to be. And I mean, there were a handful of brush tracks around. Oh, there's there? a whole handful. I kind of caught the tail end of all of all the, the brush track racing, and and that and that was a great, it was a great tool for a guy like me because I wasn't old enough to have a license yet, but I was still able to ride at those unsanctioned races. And I'll never I'll never forget. I started doing a little bit of good. I'd go down to Claremore Wednesday nights, six o'clock. They ran the th- the turn races first, and then the quarter horse races last because after dark there was only lights down the straightaway. But uh. You know, Gene used to take a lot of horses down there. My dad trained a few then and took them. But I would get uh, $15 to ride the race and 20 to win. And I could go down there and ride six, seven races and make 100 bucks. And, I, you know, I wasn't even sick. I wasn't even old enough to drive yet. And That's big money. There. There's never going to be a poor day. <laughs> but the way you exit, where, where, where you really make your money, the, how you get paid in court, in, in, in court horse, thoroughbred racing boats, you get a base mount to walk out of the room and ride the race. To, it, to walk out of the room, ride the race, run last, you get a, what they call a base mount, which is in Oklahoma is $75. But what's your incentive to win and do better and be close, closer to the top in the placings is the jock gets 10% of what the horse makes. You don't get both. You don't get the base mount plus the percentage. You get whichever's greater. Mm-hmm. You know, like if the percentage would be less than $75, you get 75 bucks. But then if the percentage is higher than that, you know, you get the ten percent. So you know, like the, the average day races at, at Remington, you know, the purses are fifteen, twenty thousand, and a horse get ten thousand to win. You know, to, just to win any day race at Remington, you guys be making a thousand bucks. And uh, and you know, when and of course the big races, uh, 
win the All American fraternity now. Yeah, the the winning horse gets a million and a half, so that's 150 grand in Jock's pocket. And right there, the Jock that wins the All American is putting 150 thousand in his pocket. The, the two years that I won the All American, the horse got like a million one, so I made like 110 grand to uh, to win that one race. Was that your biggest one day payday you ever had? For sure. Yeah, hundred thousand, hundred hundred thousand, couple times in a minute. Or <laughs> no, no, it's uh, 20, how long does it take? Twenty one seconds. Twenty one seconds. Quarter four hundred forty yards, quarter mile, which is what the quarter horse is named after. Mm-hmm. Is 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 the fact that they're bred to run that quarter of a mile. The uh, the average winning time of of all the big races is in the low twenty low twenty one seconds, twenty one seconds and change. When you had a good horse. Good enough to win the All American. Did you exercise him? Did somebody else exercise him, or how'd that work? No, I, uh, I, I did. I, it, I was known for being the working jock. Mm-hmm. I mean, even after I had got success, you know, the tracks open in the morning from six to ten, and that's what six, six days a week. Most places, some places seven. Tracks open for training from six to ten in the mornings, and. That's when the trainers, you know, take their horses out, gallop them, exercise them, work them, school them in the gate, all that stuff. I'd go out there every morning, six days a week, and I would help those trainers train those horses. I'd get on them, and and I would do the majority of all that work for free, because it that that morning work did so many different different things for me. Number one, it helped me stay fit. Mm-hmm. Number two, it helped me keep my weight down because I was working, and number three. It, I, I would I would get to know the horses because mm-hmm. there'd be a lot of times I'd have choices in races I might be able to ride, I might have the bound on two or three horses that were running in the same race and I could only ride one of course mm-hmm. so I would have to choose and by doing that morning work those young babies those young horses mm-hmm. I would know them and 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 I would know them because I'd been on them in the mornings mm-hmm. and I and uh a lot of uh, so so in, so in essence I was helping I was helping all of those trainers. For for so many years, I got to know some. Of course, some of them are my best friends, mm-hmm. and uh, and I know all of them's positives and all their negatives. I I mm. I, lo- I feel like I could, I could train if I wanted to, but uh, it I, it's way too much it, mm-hmm. to to do it. I I put in thirty five years of working my butt off that racetrack, mm-hmm. six days a week, and ride races four days a week. To where whenever I finally retired. A lot of guys asked me if I was going to train, and to train, you know, I'd probably end up with 50, 100 head horses in training, and it'd be even more work. It'd be committing. Mm-hmm. It'd be a, it, it would be a life, the, the yeah. rest of my life commitment to be a trainer, and uh, and and I'm, I own a few mares, brood mares, and I and I, I own a few horses, and it keeps me involved in horse racing. But uh, as far as wanting to work that hard, no. right? You're, for the average person, riding a quarter horse. Outside and not falling off, what can you do to help that horse? What makes you a, a one jockey better than the other? Yeah, that's that's another really good question I, that uh, people ask me so, that same question so many times, and, and I've got the really good answer. What made me, what what makes a great jockey, is being on the best horse in the race, right. point blank, and and I had so many choices that I was, you know. You know even though you're on the fastest horse in the race, mm-hmm. it's no guarantee you're going to no, no. win. There's a lot of small things that can happen. A horse can stumble. One can break and run over him, leaving the gate. 
or, you know, there's just so right. many, so many different. There's there's a lot of ways to lose a horse race, and there's only one to win it. Be in front, mm-hmm. but uh, the I was I was so fortunate to get to ride some a lot of the greatest horses to ever run down a racetrack, and and I know that, but. And I and I don't know that I was that much greater than anyone else, but I had a lot of success, and I know and I attribute a lot of it to the fact that I, I I was winning races, and whenever you're the one winning and you're the one doing good, you're the one everybody wants. It's kind of a snowball effect. Yeah. Im, image is everything, and whenever I got to doing really well, you know, even guys that I hadn't ridden for a whole lot, certain trainers that were good trainers, they would want me and. It, it would just it would open up windows and I, ha- I had a lot of choices and I was very fortunate to to have the opportunity to ride some of the greatest horses ever you know I left out some of while ago I was going to tell you about the greatest horses ever in quarter horse racing yes speed the time they've had a radar gun out at Rio Dosa before and on Labor Day weekend and the big races on and they've clocked top end speed of horses 57 mile an hour you know that's mm-hmm. that's, that's that's getting it on on yeah, back and on you know and it's it's not a good thing when one falls out underneath of you going that mm-hmm. fast, you know. It seemed it seemed like quarter horses, like you said, are just getting faster and faster, way way they're breeding them or whatever. But thoroughbreds really aren't necessarily. They're, they're, they they are to a small minimum, not mm-hmm. as much as the as the quarter horses, you know. And and I and I attribute that the thoroughbred breed goes back so much further mm-hmm. that they probably had developed the breed. Ahead of the quarter horses. Ahead of the quarter horses. And, and a lot of the quarter horses, that wh- whenever they really, in, Walter Merrick is the is the first person to really focus on introducing the thoroughbred blood into a mixture in the quarter horses. Mm-hmm. And, it, and, it, and it gave them a little more stamina down the racetrack, and he had a lot of success with it. Three bars, Leo, mm-hmm. you know, or, or horses that were had a, a big influence on the course industry that were thoroughbreds. Right. I read a uh, article just the other day, and it really surprised me. It was called the Pride of Pahuska. Yep. Guess what the horse was. I'm going to guess Leo. It was Leo. Yeah. Leo actually stood in in Pahuska the early early part of his career, and was he changed hands a few times, and uh, he's he's one of the most influential sires in the quarter horse breed today. I and think he was in and out two or three times in, two in, or three the, times in Osage in County. Yeah. Uh, there, there was a, a big time breeder and racer out at uh, lived out on the west side of town. His his name was D. Garrett, and D. had a major influence on the early the early racing part of the, of, of the American quarter horse. He had horses like uh, Vandy, Vandy's Flash. Stood some really great horses that had success at Rio Dosa and, La- and Los Angeles in California, and uh, sadly, D passed away pretty young. I think it was, I think he was only in his fifties, and and he passed away in I think the late fifties. But uh, it was a big loss to Pahuska because Pahuska was on the map in the quarter horse racing world back then because of the studs that Leo that 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 D Garrett had, and because of the racetrack there at Osage Downs. Isn't that at Paul Mays' place now, where that he was? That is Paul Mays' yeah. place. And there's one of the greatest, one of the greatest producing race mares in the history of the sport is, is actually got the name Pahusky in it. The the mare's name, D Garrett. The mare's name is Garrett Smith Pahuska. Yeah. She Garrett Smith Pahuska is one of maybe only I think there's only been one other mare in history 
that produced three running champions, three mm-hmm. or more. She had three running champions back back in the 50s and 60s, and uh, she's buried there on that place, and Paul Mays actually knows the spot that that she's buried. And, mm-hmm. and Vandy's buried out there, too. And, really? I didn't know that. Uh, yeah, and I need to... Uh, I need to have Paul uh, point those places out to me one of these days when I'm up there because you know it, uh, all that stuff is history and it's and it's it's lost to history. We need to get a marker on that yeah. and maybe do a yeah. podcast out there sometime, Cody or something. Yeah, take us with you, Gr. We'd yeah. appreciate it. I, we'd like to see some of that good stuff. What about Ted Wells? What do you remember about that fella? He was, he owned Leo for a while too. Yes, Ted, Ted Wells uh, was from Pahuska and he was he was heavily involved in. Uh, in quarter horse racing, he actually uh, trained the winner of uh, the All American Maturity. I, I'm not, I can't remember off the top of my head exactly what year it was, but it was in the '60s. A horse named uh, Savannah Junior. And uh, he, Ted, ended up standing that horse at 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 a stallion farm. And uh, T- Ted, Ted was a, he was he was a Walter Merrick type. He was an owner, breeder, and trainer, and and a stud farm owner. You know, and they, and they had, those guys like that had a major influence. Ted Wells is probably right behind Walter Merrick in the influence of the early part of American quarter horse racing history, and he's right there from Pahuska. And when then when he retired from the racehorse world, he uh, moved back to Pahuska and and, and uh, was a steer roper. Enjoyed doing some of the things he did when he was a kid, and right. uh, he ended up. He, I think he ended up tripping steers up into his 80s. He did. Yeah. I, that's all I knew him as until we started opening the museum, and I found out what a great race member of three Hall of Fames. Yes, yes. Uh, American Quarter Horse Hall of Fame, Oklahoma Racing Hall of Fame, and the Rio Dosa Downs Hall of Fame, Ted Wells. So we wanted to dink sure get a little bit of him in there. He he He's he's part of the history of the sport, and he's another person right from Pusk, Oklahoma. And his son, Scott Wells, was born in Pahuska. And Scott Wells ended up working his way up in racetrack management. Where he—he's—he matter of fact, he's actually retiring this this fall, and they're having a a big retirement party for him here at Remington in a couple of weeks. But uh, Scott Wells is uh, been the general manager at Remington Park for like the last twenty years. I mean, he is the CEO of Remington Park, which is the premier racetrack in the state of Oklahoma. You keep throwing around the this. This race out there in New Mexico called the All American. I've heard of it. I know what it is. Explain to everybody else that that may they they know what the Kentucky Derby is and the Preakness States and all that. What is the All American horse race in Riadosa? You know the, the All American. It 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 is. It's the premier horse race in quarter horse racing history. It's more or less the Kentucky Derby of quarter horse racing. But the history of the All American is is pretty fascinating. The All-American Viturity grew out. They, they started running at Rio Dosa, New Mexico. They're on a match track in the 40s. And there was a handful of, of big-time breeders that were boastful kind of guys, and they got to mouthing around that, I, my yearling, my, my weanling or my yearling is better than yours, and by God, I'm going to beat you two years from now. So what those guys started doing, they started putting their money where their mouth was. And... Hence, that, that that was that was actually the first fraternity, which is a two-year-old race, which is a jackpot race, where they make payments to put to put put their horses in 
And the the first really big race that was a fraternity was the All American Fraternity. The first running at All American Fraternity was in 1959. It was won by a uh, uh, actually Cliff Lambert was a winning jockey on on a mare named Golabar, which was a uh, a go man go mare. And uh, the All American went. It, it, the the very first purse All American was it was in a hundred hundred and fifty hundred eighty thousand bucks, and it was like. Bigger than any quarter horse or thoroughbred, any any quarter horse or thoroughbred race in the country, the All American Fraternity it just it just went from there. You know, it, it just got bigger and bigger and bigger, more and more horses, of course, which which that represented more and more money because more and more people were pay, making payments to to pay up in the race, and the All American was actually the very first horse race of any breed, quarter horse or thoroughbred, anyone that had a million dollar purse. That was the nineteen seventy eight running. Won by Moonlark. The the uh, uh, the next year, Thoroughbred Racing had their first million dollar race, which was called the Arlington Million, which was a turf race at at Arlington Park in Chicago. The All American Purse got even bigger. It was the first two million dollar horse race, which was the 1982 running, and that was the first year that the winner got a million dollars. And uh, the purse primarily stayed the same for about 30 years, and they've recently increased it to uh, $3 million. Uh, they, they, they have the, the people making the fraternity payments, and then they cap the purse of the race, and a lot of the money ends up going over into the Derby, which is the next year. But the All-American itself is the marquee race of quarter horse racing. It's the one that everyone wants to win. It's the one everyone dreams about. It's, it's, it's literally, if you're going to get famous in the quarter horse industry, it's by winning the All-American fraternity. I remember as a kid, he was always on TV, Labor Day, you know. Yeah, my uh, my father. The, one of the first years they televised it was uh, in 1975, and I, and I'm not 100 sure, but I think it might have been the first year that it was televised and on national TV, like on yeah. one of the networks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And just so happened, my father-in-law Jerry Burgess was the winning jockey on that horse. The horse, the the winning horse of the. Of the 1975 All American Maturity was Bugs Alive in '75. Yeah. Had a catchy name, you know. I've heard that name. And, and uh, we have, of course, family archives. We have a, a tape of the telecast from that year. And every once in a while, we get someone over with a with a racing background. I'll whip that out, and that, that that's the entertainment. And it's really good watching, even just the commercials and the, the different things. It's yeah. How, how much things have changed since 1975, which is, you know, yeah, long, long time ago. That's a big deal. All American was a big deal, or still is a big it, deal. It always has been. But yeah. but what everything that you see that has fraternities, jackpots, mm-hmm. all of it was spinoffs from the All American. And the All American itself was one of the one of the first ones that was a payment paid into race to where it was a jackpot pot. And was and, and was divided up proportionally. You know the barrel racers, the hell even the bull rider, the bull the bull fraternities. I mean, you got fraternities of every of, of every kind nowadays, and it all started with the All American. Gr, what what made you quit? Did you just wake up one day and say it's time to quit, or you, you know I I I worked so hard and put in so many hours and rode so many races that uh, they're. Uh, there a few years ago when I was in my my mid forties, and and another thing that happened is I I was fortunate enough to uh, 
have something else going. Tom Smith is a Tom Smith is actually a guy that took my place at Osage Downs. After I graduated high school and left Pahuska, they had a need for someone to get on those racehorses at the track. And uh, Gloria Butte was a teacher at, at Winona, and she talked Tom into going up there and going to work for, for her husband, Wayne. And Tom ended up being the local guy that's getting on all the horses at the racetrack like I had mm-hmm. been before mm-hmm. him. And so, and he would ride down with Bob Rout and DeSalisaw and on. He be, he became, more or less became a fan because he was his his uh, his hope would be able to be to follow in my footsteps. Mm-hmm. But he ended up being a little too big to be a jockey. But uh, nonetheless, he became a really good friend of mine. And he is in the pipeline business. And uh, in 2012, he was wanting to get start a little company on his own. And I put up the money to help him get started. When he approached me, it was perfect timing because at that time I was in my mid-40s. I was thinking, man, what am I going to do when I can't ride races forever? I need to get something else going. And when he approached me, I thought, this this, this is too good to be true. You know, and of course, he's he's done really well. It's uh, Arrowhead Pipeline Services, and I, I still, me and my wife still own half of it. And Tom, he's, he's pretty much my hero because... Uh, He's done about twice as good as I probably thought that he would have. And uh, so everyone knows where Arrowhead is out there on Highway 99. And uh, and not a lot of people know that, that that I'm a partner in Arrowhead Pipeline Services. But after we got that going, of course, we were making money off of Arrowhead. And that made it to where I really didn't need to be a jockey anymore. But I enjoyed it so much. And it was it was really tough to quit. To quit. It was just emotional to walk away from something. Oh, sure. That you, you know, that was my life. It was my identity, and uh, I quit at the for the first time at the at the end of 2015, and I made it nine months without getting on a racehorse of any kind. You know what brought me out of, out of retirement? The All American Victory. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to ask you. You know, the only time I really miss roping right now is about that Ben Johnson rolls around or Cheyenne rolls around. So. Ben Johnson, Cheyenne, or the steer open finals. Yeah. You know the big the big events. Well, a trainer that I'd ridden for a bunch, Toby Keaton, had a couple horses in the finals that he was going to need riders for because the guy that qualified his horses qualified another one and was going to ride that other horse. He needed two jockeys. Toby got a hold of me and asked me, said, hey, is there any way, if, if, if you, he said, where's your weight at? And I, you know, I've got two weeks still All-American. I'm about 15 pounds over being where I needed to be to be able to ride that race. And uh, I told him, I said, if you, he said, if you'll, if you'll ride one of them, I'll let you pick which, which one of the two horses you want to ride. And I told him, game on. So I went and rode the All-American. The horse run, I ended up running six, which is about where the horse is supposed to. But I had to uh, do some serious some serious dieting, running, not eating anything for about two weeks, and exercising and getting my weight down. Where, I, and by riding that, I ended up riding three races that Labor Day weekend, and then I rode a few races at Lone Star at Dallas that fall, and I won the Texas Classic Derby. So I only rode like about eighteen races that fall, but it just opened a can of worms. Like the trainers were all, of course, my mm-hmm. old friend. They said, "Are you going to ride, or what are you going to do?" You know, and at, at the time I was. You know, I was I was in my late later later forties. I was probably forty seven, and I'm really glad that I went back and rode for for a couple more years. I ended up riding all of seventeen and all of eighteen, 
the main reason why I'm really glad that I did, of course, because I had some success. I, I ended up winning four or five more really big races. But I'm so glad that I did because I quit just just barely early enough in in, in my career to where I know when I'm 70, I'm not going to say, man, I wish I'd went back and rode a couple more years. I did. That's what I did. And, and whenever I quit, the second time, I quit, the, which is almost three years ago, December 18th, December of 18, the last race I rode, I won the big year infantry at Los Alamitos in California called the Los Alamitos 2 million. And I had a couple other races lined up that I was supposed to ride a week or two later, but they were for the same trainer, Mike Joyner, which is primarily, the, he was primarily my man for the last 15, 20 years I rode. Mike told me, if you want that to be it, I'm good with it. Because we knew those other horses probably didn't have a chance. They ain't up not any good. Mm -hmm. So the actual last race that I ever rode was the Lost Out 2 Million Fraturity. And that mare got 800000 to win that race, flash and roll. And so I made eighty grand the last race I ever rode. It was like a storybook ending. Hollywood story right there. Uh, a storybook ending, you know. I, uh, and and, that, and that, that'll keep me from ever, from ever riding another race, even if I want to, because I don't want to mess up that right. perfect ending. Right. Wrong. <laughs> Wrong. I've already seen him run another race this summer, Jimbo. Really? Oh, I did. With my that. own eyes, yeah, own two eyes. He lost a little there. Uh, you know, it might be a good idea that he quit. Yeah, know? he's lost a step or two. Yeah, it yeah. looks like. Uh, there, there. I know. I know what uh, Cody's referring to here. I. Uh, they. Tom Smith had a little something to do with that. He kind of dared me. He told me I'd see, show him I could still have it. I did ride the ostrich. At the Ben Johnson steer open for a few strides, for, and I fell off. And kind of embarrassed myself. <laughs> and right before this happened, you know what he told me? He said, I don't care how I do. I just don't want to fall off right here in front of my hometown crowd. And I'll be damned. That ostrich took about five long steps, and there went GR. They yeah. were hauling. That was a fast ostrich you were on, too. It was a ball of speed. I think I think his world record ostrich, yeah. <laughs> well, you, you do hold the world record in ostrich racing, from what I hear, and camel racing. Yeah, they... they uh, Joe Hedrick, uh, Hedrick Productions uh, in Kansas, he has, uh, brings ostrich, camels, and zebras around to the racetrack. It's kind of like a rodeo act, and it's become a really, really popular deal and entertaining for the whole family. And uh, I've ridden the ostrich and the camel several times at the racetrack and have won the camel race probably half a dozen times and I won the ostrich race a couple times at the racetracks. You know, uh, it's not very common knowledge, but I know Joe Hedrick, too. And I was one. I was in the very first ostrich race he ever had. I I I was told that by Joe Hedrick. He told me he told me that you were the first ostrich jock that he ever had back when you was a kid. Yeah, Hen House Harry was my bird. <laughs> you remember the name of the bird? Just, oh yeah. Just like your your first ride, your first winner. Just like mine. I know mine was Bee's Jester. Oh, I think my I think Hen House Harry had uh, some gravel in his feet or something weighing him down. Didn't I didn't win it, but I was the first ostrich jockey he ever hired. <laughs> and 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 I and I'm going to give confirmation that Joe Hedrick did tell me the exact same story that you were the first one. Yeah, so I'll tell it real quick. A Japanese television station came into town. Joe Hedrick was our neighbor. He just lived down the road from us. And a Japanese television station came to town. They were filming this game show where people bet on different things in Japan. The world's best gamblers in Japan would bet on different races from around the world. And uh, Joe sold him an ostrich race. So uh, I had to take this note to school the next day. said, 
Cody was not at school yesterday because he had to write an ostrich for a Japanese television show. <laughs> so <laughs> I even remember the note I had to take to school the next day. That's hilarious. Yeah. Well, me and uh, GR were just ostrich racers from way back, both of us. Oh, yeah. Um, they say that you hold, your dad told me you hold the record in five breeds besides quarter horse. What would that be? Well, <laughs> and your dad was awful proud of oh, you too. Oh yeah, dad's so. awful proud. But you know, but I, I rode, I rode, of course, quarter horse, quarter horse is my identity, and I rode paints, apps, thoroughbreds, and I actually, and I did ride a handful of Arabian races that uh, were they were the Arabian Arabians were racing at Los Alamitos when I first went out there in uh, 1990, and uh, I rode a handful of the races, but. I got away from them right quick because they're uh, they're just they're just so much slower than a quarter horse. It doesn't even seem. It, it, I'm afraid it'd mess up my time. <laughs> so uh, I, I, I probably rode less than less than ten Arabian races. So I did actually ride five different breeds. But uh, the uh, the ones that I held the record in at one time or still is uh, is course quarter horse racing. Apps and paints. Um, I was the all-time leading money earner and race winner in paints. But just recently, a kid passed me become the uh, all-time lead money earner, but I'm still the all-time leader by wins. And then in Appaloosa racing history, I'm the all-time leader in wins and money earn both, too, besides quarter horses. So it's actually three, not five, Dad. Gotcha. <laughs> well, he was pretty proud of you. Old George is pretty proud of you. I, I always like to. We were friends for a long time, me and your dad. I knew him way before I ever even knew you, well, GR. Yeah. yeah, Dad. My dad and your dad were trip steers together around the circuit. I'm sure Dad knew you from the time he was born. Oh, yeah, I'd see him. at. Well, you know, we didn't have living quarters trailers and stuff like that. So I remember a few ropings that you had to camp out at, and your dad, he was... He drove 50 miles and got a room. Yeah. We all camped out. That's what it was. I remember it now. <laughs> but uh, one, of, one of my best friends my entire life, and I always looked up to him. He was a great guy. So yeah. he, was, he, was my, he was my best friend, and, and you know, and he was, he was the guy that guided my life more or less, you know, especially the early part of my career. Gave me my first job. I never met anyone like him. He was a true character. You know, yeah, you, know sure. I, you know, I wish so bad that you brought that up, Jimbo, that that I would have had one of the one of the speakers at my dad's funeral. I wish that I would have had everybody that he gave their first job to stood up. Yeah. Because I promise you, there was a bunch of them there. There was right a there. bunch of them there. Yeah. He he was known for someone that would give any kid a chance to start well, with, and you know, I was just out of welding school, you know, yeah. and he just offered me a job, and, and I. It worked out. I mean, I was there four or five years and and uh, learned a lot, you know, that I carried on later on. Yeah. You know, I really appreciate the time I spent with Carter Construction. Yeah, he was, he and and you know, and, and a lot of guys like you that w went on to bigger and better things. He was, he felt like he was, he was oh, part of it. He, he was. was proud of he it. Was. He was proud of them, just like he's proud of me. Yep. You know. Yep. He loved roping, didn't he? Oh yeah, it was his life. He uh, it's in your blood. It was yeah. I mean, Uncle Barton was world champion twenty six. My granddad Carter uh, trip steers too, and uh, it just carried right on to dad. And uh, you know, some one couple of his best friends that he grew up with, you know, ended up being great steer ropers too, like John Miller. They graduated from high school together and went and stayed on Uncle Ben's ranch out in Modesto, California. Went to school out there in sixty one and sixty two. And uh, 
dad ended up tripping steers all through the 80s and uh i felt like that's why he worked had ran car construction where he had the money to go to, to, to go follow the had steering that old orange cadillac remember that oh yeah oh yeah i know yeah. all about that the, rodeo money the great pumpkin was the orange cadillac no, well, <laughs> that's what we called it i remember he used to carry around uh rolls of copenhagen and skull with him back in the early days and he'd swap on them there at the at the uh, ropens oh yeah he uh he had an indian smoke shop uh it had it actually had a couple, one in Hominy, but the one that's still in operation that I've inherited is a uh, Firewalker Smoke Shop in North Tulsa, and uh, he, uh, of course, he had access to the tobacco products because he was, had a smoke shop and he was taking around and selling to his cowboy buddies too. Besides the uh, besides your pipeline business, which is a great business, you don't see very many cowboys or probably even jockeys be able to retire. The way you have probably. Um, besides that, what are you up to now, Gr? Well, you know, I, I was I was so fortunate to, uh, you know, to to have done well for so long that I was so. I mean, that, that's just what I did. You know, I, you know, you were asking earlier, and I didn't really elaborate on it much about how much running around I did. I uh, <laughs> there would be days that I would ride races here at Remington Park and catch a flight. You know, during the day and catch a flight, which is two hours earlier in California, and fly out there and ride the stake, the big race that ran that night at Los Alamitos in in uh, Orange County, California. And then I would have to take the red eye flight back this way through Dallas or Houston or whatever in Oklahoma City to be able to be here in time to ride the next day. I mean, I did a lot of I did a lot of. Did the owners ever send any uh, private? Jets to come pick you up just oh, to get yeah. on their horse at a I certain place. I flew on a handful of private jets. I sure did. Uh, there was I did something that uh, I did something that uh, probably no one else has ever done or ever will again. There's been there was three different times in my three different days in my career that I rode races at three different tracks. the The last time I did it, I rode it at Woodlands in in, in Kansas City. This races started at twelve o'clock and they ran quarter horse they ran the three quarter horse races first. I think I won the Kansas Paturity and Derby that day. And he and I won all three races. Then I flew on a private jet to Blue Ribbon Downs and rode two two of the AQHA challenge stakes races there and then caught a ride with some jocks that were driving and rode a, a, the big stakes race the refrigerator handicap that night at Lone Star Park in Dallas. That's the last time I did. I rode it three tracks in one day, and I, I I don't know of any any other jock that has done that even once, let alone three different times. That sounds like the Fourth of July rodeoing with yeah. Ty Murray or somebody back yeah, in the we, day. I did I did a lot of flying around and running around, and then when and then right there towards the, the last four or five years of my career, I kind of limited myself on doing quite as much running around just because it seemed like it seemed kind of hectic, you know doing so much running around so i tried to just stay pretty much with the same circuit right here at remington park in the spring riados in the summer and then in the fall the big races at los alamitas or lone star park in dallas and i rode some at claremore they ever fly anywhere international to run i rode uh match races uh in the mid 90s quite a bit down in mexico uh what's that like chihuahua, chihuahua hermosillo has to be way different oh, than yeah. racing here. It's, it's it's completely different. You know the the majority the majority of the horses are are all owned by the drug warlords, <laughs> and 
you know, it, the the things that's big in Mexico is is uh, racing horses and fighting chickens and yeah. they ain't what they can bet on. And uh, it's all the the drug warlords. They're buying the best horses that they can buy here in the states and taking them down there. A lot of the horses I go down there and ride would be uh, would be horses that I'd ridden up here. And it seemed like I'd go about once a month. I did it there for about five years. I'd probably go down there once once a month to mainly Chihuahua is where I went the most. And uh, and they they paid in cash to to get, to get you to come. And and, and uh, it's something that looking back on, I'm, I don't know that I would. There's no way that you could go nowadays with what's going on in Mexico. With it, it's just entirely too dangerous for an American. To be down there, you know, I might get kidnapped or something. But but back then, maybe I was young and dumb and didn't know any better, and just <laughs> went down there all the time. Sounds fun, really. But yeah, sounds, sounds like it might have been a good time. It was, it was a good time. It's a lot like the old the old west down there. Sometimes the west, yeah. sounds like something you'd have done, Cody. Yeah, yeah I'd sure. have been right there with him if, if oh, we'd yeah. have been buddies you, growing you up. You could have been my chauffeur or whatever. Oh yeah. The, the, assistant starter in the gates to help me out or any of that stuff i'd have done anything I, i'm a great roadie cody the roadie i would have been great for you gr i would have done anything you needed me to do so yep. you know one one thing i think i got off subject well i can't remember the exact question you asked me but one thing that you always point out is of course my parents jimbo brought up my mother you know when i got older and started having a lot of success i and looking back on it you know all the things that I did as a kid. It made me realize how much how much time and money that my parents both sacrificed. Sure. For me and my sister's benefit, you know, and uh, and I'm pretty grateful to both of them for that. Well, you can tell. I mean, you, um, well, anything you ended up decided you wanted to be, it looks like you were going to be one of the very best in the world at whether it was wrestling, gymnastics. Bull riding, roping, but he settled on horse racing. Yeah, bull, bull riding and roping. I think I'm just kind of m- middle of the road. <laughs> well, I heard that you were quite the roper when you first started out. They were they were claiming that you were probably going to be one of the next big uh, steer ropers because uh, oh. you could get off a horse quite a bit faster than everybody else. You could keep your balance and get down to them all caddy-like. Uh, I heard that you tied some really fast steers in that big Ben Johnson arena when they used to have the club yeah. rope in there quite a bit. Yeah, back, I, I tripped steers back when I was 16, 17, still in high school in, in the in the in the club ropings, and uh, it was a lot of fun. But uh, then after I started riding races, you know, I kind of I got there, there was about eight or about eight years there in the mainly through the nineties where I, I didn't pick a rope up because you know when I graduated from high school. I took a team roping horse with me to Salisaw, and I'd try to go to some of the local jackpots, you know, Hamilton Sports Arena. I'm sure both of y'all been there by hand. Oh, yeah. And get home at 2 in the morning and then have to be out there at the racetrack on one at 6. And, of course, I was right out of high school, and I was trying to get, I was trying to get established and trying to get my career really really going. And, and I thought, man, I, I got to quit this team roping and all. It's it, it, it's 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 a distraction, you know, and it and it, of course it takes a lot of money to rope, and uh, so I sent my horse back home, had dad sell him, and I didn't pick a rope up for eight years, you know, and then and that and that that's the eight years where I really became, you know, developed my identity of being a jockey and who I was, and then after the USTRC, those jackpot team ropings got back really big, I uh, bought a horse 
in the, in the probably late nineties. Matter of fact, I bought the horse off of Tom Smith, of all people, and uh, that's I've been back roping when I can ever since then, for the last twenty five years, I guess. Team roping or steer roping? Uh, you had to pick one. A little bit of both, you know. And you got to pick one. Oh, if I'm gonna pick one, it's steer roping because that's that's what I grew up around, you know, and that's what I was a fan of, you know. All my heroes were cowboys, and they were they were guys that were great steer ropers, like Arnold Phelps, Walter Arnold. Uh, Roy Cooper, of course, Guy Allen, you know, guys like that. Those were my heroes as a kid. And uh, so I've really been tripping steers the last few years since I can go to the senior deals where I feel like I have a chance. And then the, they have the Legacy Side Pot in the PRCA. And uh, Yeah, tell us about that real quick. That's a, that's a pretty interesting deal. Yeah, they, the uh, the PRCA had uh, a lot of gold card opens, which is guys for over 50 to have, have a gold card. They'd have some side pots at places like Cheyenne and and Pendleton, well, they come up with this here just, I think this is the third year that they've had the legacy side pod. They start calling it the legacy, and they've got a little bit added money and stuff, and they have it at a lot at a lot more of them. And what they've done, they've tried to make this side pot to try to keep some of the older guys still still entering to help, help their numbers. And they have a finals uh, that they take the top 15 at during the steer open finals up at Mulvane, Kansas here in a couple weeks. And uh, and I actually qualified for the Legacy Finals this year and this, the Senior Steer Ropers Association Finals, which is, an, is a different organization, is their finals is right before then, too. So two different senior finals I'm going to rope in up there in a couple weeks. Oh, yeah, that's going to be some good. We wish you luck, GR. We hope you bring home lots of money and some big buckles from that deal. You going you going to make it up there? Uh, we were going to try to, but that's the same weekend Jimbo's granddad's getting inducted into the Cowboy Hall of Fame. So Wow. Impressive. We, there's a lot going on that week, but uh we're going to we're going to hit that one up instead of the steer open finals well, this year. That's uh they're they're only going to induct him once into the Cowboy Hall of Fame, and the steer open finals goes on every year. That's, That's right. Good choice. Your uncle is he is he inducted in there? Barton? Yes, Barton is so. in the uh, the Cowboy Hall of Fame. Uh, he was inducted. Uh, it's been it's been probably about twelve fifteen years ago. Uh, you know they they had a cat they have a category every year of of someone like pre you know someone that they feel like got left out, and uh, he he was inducted and. It was amazing how many, how many, how many family members were there of cousins that you know I haven't seen for years before then, and hadn't seen them since. There was there was fifty or sixty, fifty or sixty Carter family people there at the induction. Oh wow! Yeah, that's something else. Dad was pretty proud of it. Of course, he sh- should have been. Yeah, he was really something else. Old Barton. They said, uh, "What what's the deal with that that big barn just west of town?" Um, it's on Ellis's place now. Was that y'all's place? The, yeah, the uh, that's a beautiful barn. I mean, yeah. it's a landmark, is what it is. Yeah, that 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 piece of property there where Ellis Thomas lives, that was my that was my granddad and Uncle Barton's allotment. That was that that piece of property right there was 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 the boys' allotment, which allotment was in 1907. So Granddad would have only been nine years old, and Barton was like four years older than that. So he was like 13, and their dad, G.R. Carter, George Carter, senior, he 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 built his place on their, those boys' allotment land, and and I think they I think he sold it in the uh, 
they, I, they inherited it, but they ended up selling it. I think in the thirties during the depression, and uh, I would my my lifelong dream would be to uh, own that piece of property because it was my granddad, my great uncle's allotment land. It would mean it would mean a lot to me. But Ellis's family's been established there for years. Desperate times call for desperate measures exactly. sometimes. Exactly. Uh, I've, I've had to sell my good steer roping horse a time or two. Just, oh, yeah. And everything else. Yeah. After a long year of rodeoing. Well, GR. I forgot what I was going to say. Jimbo, you got anything else for GR? Well, just like thank you for inviting us down for sure. And um, I can't help but look up on the wall, Cody. That picture, I see Alva, Red Carter, I see Barton Carter, I see Jim Snively, oh, yeah. I see Ben Johnson Sr., I see John McIntyre, Reba's grandpa, uh, right there at Pahuska, taken 1946. Uh, GR's Osage County roots run deep. He's got that picture on the wall. He's never forgot where he came from. And, oh, no. And uh, we're just awful proud of him. Well, thank you. Did, Jimbo, do you have any idea exactly where that picture was at? Was at he know, he knows everything exactly. about that picture. Yeah. At the fairground? Yes. And that was a match roping between my grandfather and, and Fred Larry. I'm so glad I asked because... And it was to commemorate the chutes. The Roundup Club had just welded those chutes up. Really? And they had that match roping there. And, and, and what year was it? 46. 1946. Yeah. There's Ike Rude in the picture. Yeah. 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 Yeah, it, it's quite a picture. Well, Ike Rude, he spent a lot of time over there at that big barn of yours, GR, of your families that Ellis owns now. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I read a deal. He said he came to stay, he came to stay the night, and he stayed six years <laughs> with your Uncle Barton. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that would, and that would have been, that would have probably been in the 30s. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you're an Osage Indian. Oh, yeah. What's that mean to you, GR? Well, it's, it's. You know the the Osage the Osage is the is the headquarters of the Osage tribe, and it's it's it it just makes me feel even more connected to that area. That you know I'm I'm a, a cowboy with a white name, but I've got some Indian blood in me. I'm a card carrying Osage. Yes, sir. Got my own CDIB card and 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 membership in the tribe, and uh and it 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 makes me feel even that much more connected to that area. And I'm proud of Osage blood. He kept talking about the allotment land, so that's the original land that the government gave your family. And then um, what was different about the Osage tribe and their reservation compared to most, what I've read is that they bought it. They owned it, which makes which made where they could sell it and do what they wanted with it. They were the only tribe to buy their reservation lock, stock, and barrel, and that's where all the mineral rights came well, into they, play. And they were, well, what... what was genius of them that they were smart enough to keep the mineral rights whenever they sold the property. Yes, and that's why they even changed the they even changed it in Osage County to where you you can't sell the mineral rights because the tribe owns the, all the mineral rights in the whole county. The tribe owns the mineral rights forever. The owner don't the the owners of the property do not. The uh, the movie coming out. What do you think about it? Have you seen anything about it? Have you read the book? Have you listened to the book? Oh yeah, I've listened. I've listened. It's a powerful story. It's a powerful for a story. True I've, story. I mean, I've read the book and a couple of times, and uh, you know, it's 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 pretty dang cool that that they're they're making that movie with such big stars too. 
with it, with it, with there being such big stars in it, it's going to it's going to it's going to be a big you know it might be one of the biggest it, hell it might be the Oscar winner. I bet it is. I bet it is. Yeah, they. Uh, I read something, or the one of them told me they've spent more on this movie than any other movie. Largest budget movie in American history right here. Really? And they gave more for the rights to the book to make a movie than any other movie in history. So it, it, You know, if if you read the book and, and, and really look at the story and, of course, with the, the advent of, of, the, of the, F, of the, the predecessor of the FBI and all, it, I could see where it would easily be the biggest. It's a powerful story and it's going to really shine a light on us. On Pahuska. Okay, on Pahuska be- and, a, and, a, and a time in American history that a lot of people don't know about. You know, I've always heard all these stories being around there, you know, off and on my whole life, but I never realized. They didn't you know, teach that in school that I'm aware of, or if they no. did, I would skip that. <laughs> not at my school. I was in, I not, not school in Kansas, they no, didn't. I, no, they didn't. They, I don't, they, they, did, they didn't teach in school about mm-hmm. the history of the Osages, which... Is got a really dark, dark part of it right there, mm-hmm. and that that the the thing they're showcasing in the movie. Right, this is going to blow people's minds. It's going to be a, it's going to be a big movie. I'm excited to watch it. It's going to be sad but exciting. Exactly, all at the same time. All at the same time. Well, Gr, thanks for sitting down with us today. And uh, man, did you ever think when you were just some kid wrestling in high school, you'd be in every major? Hall of Fame for horse racing. You've won every major horse race that you can win in your disciplines. Um, did no. you think your life would turn out like this? Oh no, with not not at all. But you know, I, I do I do remember after I started having some success with it and realizing that I could I could more or less have the kind of success, close to the kind of success I had. I remember dedicating myself to it, and and that was what I was known for as being a hard worker. Dedicated, dependable, the guy they could count on. I made those trainers feel like whenever they laid me up, you know, they could just go get them a coke and go watch the race. They didn't, they didn't have too much to worry about. They knew they were in good hands when they hired Gr. Well, all right, you're a living legend, Gr, oh, and we're about we're all dang proud to know you. And uh, we know there's going to be a lot more Hall of Fames and stuff coming up for you in the near future. And uh, we're real excited to see what happens for you in the future, right here, Gr. Thank you for being on our podcast today. Thanks for having me. I enjoyed it immensely, guys. All right. If you want to learn more about this great cowboy, just come on down to the Ben Johnson Cowboy Museum. He's got the second biggest display in there, right behind Ben Johnson. GR does. So come on in and check it out. He also has a big one over at Remington Park. I think they still give away your bobbleheads at Remington Park and Riadosa Downs. There's probably no other jockeys they do that for at either one of them. Nobody has the name to back it up. So... That's something else. You're the only guy I know that has not one, but two different bobbleheads of himself, personally. So that's really cool. Well, thank you for sitting down with us today, GR. And uh, man, if someone wants to learn how to be a champion in any sport, it sounds like, you should probably rewind this podcast and listen to it again because it doesn't get any better than that. Until next week, we'll see you.